0: Melissa Jackson was nine when her mother, Annie Mae Hutchinson, died in the thiacal plant explosion.
1: And even though I was young, we were very close, and I remember very special moments with her.
0: Her mom took her shopping every weekend. Probably while I still shop like I do today. And encouraged her to be whoever she wanted to be.
1: And she would always tell me, remember, you can be and do whatever you want to, and you don't need anyone to help you do that. You can do it alone, because at that time, my mother and father had divorced, and he moved to South Florida. So I distinctly remember her always telling me that. So it was my goal to leave Camden and to do whatever I could do to be a better person, to make a better living than the average person made in a small rural town. That was was always my goal
0: and that's exactly what she did. She graduated from high school, played basketball, and earned scholarships to multiple universities.
1: I got a scholarship to the University of Miami and Florida A&M, as well as the University of Florida.
0: Now she's working on her second master's degree. Because I think it's
1: important for everyone to know that the people on this wall were not just mediocre people. I tend to think that people see people in rural areas, especially women, at that time, as not as educated, not as smart, or so to speak, not having the best of life. And. I see my mom as just being the opposite. My mom graduated at the top of her class. She was very bright. But I know from knowing her in the short time I spend with her, she wanted the best of life for herself and me. They were people, they were human, and they were just not the common people. They were smart people as well, and they had a future.
0: This is Tripwire. In the last episode, we discussed the lawsuit against the U.S. government, the trial that was split into two parts. The first was on liability. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at the damage proceedings for the victims.
2: Federal courts ultimately ruled that the U.S. government was liable and should pay out the plaintiffs. Judge Lawrence settled the first claims case for Mr. Arts and his wife, the test case for the trial. Their win meant the rest of the claims can finally be settled too.
0: Government attorneys said the path to restitution would be smooth, but 717 million in claims was a large sum. And behind the scenes, they had other ideas in mind.
2: A day before the claims hearings were supposed to begin, U.S. attorneys threw another wrench into the slow turning gears of the legal system. They moved to dismiss the rest of the claims entirely.
0: They cited a recent change in Georgia's workers' compensation law, a change that could technically allow the U.S. government to shield itself from being sued by classifying itself as an employer or as the principal contractor. It was the same immunity that their subcontractor, Thiokol, was afforded under state law. And with this new tool...
2: The American government wanted to avoid paying the plaintiffs completely.
0: The government's last move took plaintiffs and their attorneys by surprise. Five years after the liability determination, the government was still trying to shield itself from that liability.
2: Wayne Alford, an attorney from Jacksonville representing some of the victims, told local media that he was ready to seek additional damages for his clients because the delay was just so prolonged.
0: This is frustrating and the hard part is, Wayne said, How many times do you tell your clients the case is on appeal? At a point, they will think we're all in this together.
2: The legal turn was infuriating for the lawyers and agonizing for the plaintiffs. And it confounded the courts. By mere luck, Arts and his wife got paid. But now the rest of the victims? They were back on the razor's edge.
0: The federal courts recognized the irony of the situation. Judge Avant B. Edenfield swiftly denied the government's new motion to dismiss the claims. He wrote... After long years, the end to litigation, for a few months in view, has disappeared with the filing of this motion, leaving the litigants and the court once again at the threshold.
2: But the basis of the court's decision was an interesting one. The ruling didn't deal directly with whether or not the U.S.'s new argument was correct, that they should or shouldn't be given immunity, just like Thiokol as an employer.
0: Instead, Edenfield ruled that the government had brought this argument too late. Until this point in the litigation, the U.S. attorneys had not taken this position of an employer and had waived their right to do so.
2: U.S. attorneys appealed, but Judge Enfield's decision was upheld by the appeals court. Finally, after another two years, the battle was over.
0: By the time the settlement hearings started in 1984, plaintiffs were disillusioned. Many thought the compensation would never come. That the U.S. government would ultimately find a way to throw the case back in the appeals court over and over again.
2: The claims hearing stretched on for the next two years. About 56 plaintiffs were wrapped up in 24 different lawsuits. For those next two years, the injured and grieving recounted the memories they wanted to forget while attorneys calculated how much the victims' lives were worth.
1: And each time I talk about this, I relive it. I remember just playing on the playground that day at Woodbine Elementary with some of my friends. And I just remember hearing sirens consistently, helicopters flying over our school. And I remember running on the playground and kidding with my friends and I just kept saying that I wish the sirens would stop so we can play. I wish all the noise would stop. And not knowing at that time what had happened.
0: About a half hour later, Melissa's neighbor picked her up from school. And um,
1: I remember riding home and I wondered why she kept looking in the back seat at us, and she was crying. And I remember her saying, "You guys gotta be okay. You gotta be okay." And she kept crying. So I said, "Miss Freda Mae, why are you crying?"
0: When Melissa got home, her grandmother was lying on the couch
1: with IVs in her arm, and nurses were around her. And it was just a lot of people at my grandparents' home.
0: So she was faint from the news of the explosion, and she said, "My mother had passed."
1: I remember I stopped and I just started screaming in my grandparents living room. When I asked everybody to leave, I just said, get out, get out, get out of my grandparents' house. And I went into my room and I locked myself inside of my room. And a friend of my grandparents came and knocked on the door. And she kept calling my name, Lisa, Lisa, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to take care of you. And I just remember staying in that room for hours and hours and hours. And it was like close to nightfall by the time I came out.
0: was in elementary school when her mother died. When it came time for her to testify for the claims trial, she was in college.
1: That's when I saw the whole political side of it. They asked questions. Well, first of all, they had a big huge picture of my mom and they put it directly in front of me on the tripod without any kind of warning or anything. So I guess to see my expression, I don't know. They would ask questions like, well, If your mother would have been alive, what do you think she would have been doing? What her occupation would have been? Would she have three or more kids? Would she have been unmarried? Would she
0: have taken care of her? Would she have been unemployed? Melissa recounts. My
1: answer was, well, my mom graduated at one of the two top graduating in her class. And she worked and she took care of me. after.
0: Melissa said that in her testimony, She refused to paint her mother, Annie Mae Hutchinson,
1: as a stereotype. And they started to quickly ask questions to quickly get me, I think, to get my testimony over with. Things they would hope I was saying, would say, or answers they thought I would answer. And my answers were just the opposite of that. It it just reinforced some of my beliefs on politics and government. And big time companies, how they work together and try to minimize the lesser person. The questions they were asking me were questions as to minimize my mother. Then, when the settlement was going, all the fight, all of that, that was going on with the settlement. Daddy took charge. I didn't
2: give Joyce that. Banks' bow wasn't part of the damage hearings for her mother, Ethel Banks. Joyce previously told us how Ethel was a hardworking teacher and had a unique knack for sewing and making clothes for children in Woodbine. In the hearing, it was Joyce's brother who testified. Jerry Lee Banks retold the harrowing day of his mother's death. At the time, he was 16 years old. According to a Savannah Morning News report of the trial, Jerry described going to the plant site with his grandfather. It was his grandfather who went ahead and identified Ethel. And when he returned, tears were in his eyes, said Jerry. The only way his grandfather could identify her was the gap in her front teeth. The rest of her body had been burnt beyond recognition.
0: Government lawyers tried to limit Jerry's testimony just to what he saw, not his grandfather. But the judge issuing the damages denied that effort.
2: These people have waited 13 years to tell their stories, and they haven't had a chance to do so, the judge said.
0: The attorney representing the family sued the government for 25 million. Ultimately, they got 155,000 for Ethel's death.
2: How much each plaintiff received depended on medical bills, disabilities incurred, and lost wages, etc. The economic damages. Losses like emotional distress or pain and suffering is harder to determine. The federal government can't be sued for punitive damages.
0: By 1986, most of the claims were resolved. A total of 24 lawsuits sought more than $700 million in damages, but in the end, less than $25 million was awarded. Some of the more seriously injured won six-figure settlements. Others waited 17 years to receive just tens of thousands of dollars. And, like in most tort cases, about 25% went to the attorneys.
3: It was April of, ni- April of 1986, I'm not mistaken.
0: Lewis Birch had lost his wife, Betty Birch, in the explosion. His younger brother, Charles, who ran back into the building to save Betty, died as well. The family got 250000 and 270000 from the settlements for Betty and Charles, minus the attorney fees.
3: Our attorney had to go in debt in order to get money to fight
2: this case as long as he did.
0: Atlanta attorney Joseph Jones Jr. told local media he had to mortgage his house to finance the case until the settlement.
2: Jones said the federal government, quote, had no incentive to settle because of who they were. It's almost a privilege to be allowed to sue them. A bit the heat, they stuck in there. They hung right in there. They want it, and they want it.
0: The injured used the money to pay off medical bills and ongoing treatment for injuries related to the explosion. Parents left their money to their children and put their kids through college. But some who had died during the ordeal never got to see the settlement.
3: Our government cared less about the humanity of the people. Why in the world, they would continue to contest the case like they did and carry it on so long.
0: Reverend Jesse Blackshear was serving as a Savannah area state representative when the Thiago explosion happened. He, along with others, helped victims find legal representation in the lawsuits.
3: Now, I'm not a lawyer, I don't pretend to know to know anything about that, but someone suggested, "Hey, you you keep it you keep it rolling until they die out." So, some folk did die. They're gone. That's that. Um, that's life. That's that's American way.
0: It's what happened to Bertha May Hill's son. Bertha May was Teresa Lang Brown's friend who died in the blast. At that time, she had a five-year-old son, John.
2: A damage claim was filed on behalf of John, but in 1979, in the throes of the appeal, he was killed, hit by a motorist on the highway while waiting for the school bus.
0: John's foster grandmother, who took him in after his mother died, thought things may have been different had there been a settlement on the boy's claim. She said, maybe we just could have made a better life for him. But we were talking about an area uh,
3: that had no jobs. There were very few jobs in in that area for women, that alone women, but for black women especially. They contracted with the federal government to hire local people through the welfare department, And that gave these people an opportunity to have jobs that paid minimum wage. And so to make the minimum wage was much
0: better. Woodbine saw Thiokol as an opportunity, but Thiokol saw the same of Woodbine. Being paid minimum wage or above minimum wage was unheard of for Black women in the area. But factories like Thiokol benefited from the cheap labor of marginalized people in rural regions who had no other means of work. The plant may have been at the forefront of workplace integration, but the company profited from the desegregation. Thiokol and the U.S. government offered a decent wage, but in the end, it was the workers and their families who had to pay.
3: Both of them are corporates. both of them need to be blamed. I hold both of them responsible. And I still think fairness and justice has not been been obtained to this day. I really don't think so.
0: Next week, in the final episode of Tripwire, we'll take a look at what Janie Everett and the rest of the Thiacal Memorial Museum are doing to commemorate the victims of the Thiacal explosion. We'll hear about their efforts to bring this piece of buried Georgia history all the way to the White House,
1: because I lost my mom at a young age and I go through life thinking about what if she would have been here or she would have loved my daughter or she would have been proud of me and to think about those things she will never have that opportunity to see that. Things that happen in rural areas people just don't see those as people as being as valuable as others. I feel it's very important for the memories of my mom as well as the other 29 others not to be forgotten and also to let the younger generation in this county know the importance, um, the, the pride they took in doing a job where there weren't many jobs to do at that time in this county simply to make a better living for themselves as well as their family. Those were things that they were producing to help the federal government. So that's why I think this is very important to make that make that be well known and for them not to be forgotten and to feel that their life was not in vain.
0: The Tripwire podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Ann and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Guan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Fiegel Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at fiegelmemorial.org.